Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, this is another of our conversations on intellectual humility and historical thinking. Today's guest is Suzanne Marchand. She is Boyd Professor at Louisiana State University, where her interests are within the realm of European intellectual history, but she has ranged more widely than that. Her books include Down from Olympus, Archaeology and Philhellenism in Germany, 1750-1970, German Orientalism in the Age of Empire, Race, Religion, and Scholarship, and Porcelain, A History from the Heart of Europe, which was the subject of a conversation on this podcast in episode 190. She has recently been writing a lot about the reception and interpretation of Herodotus, and a book is in due course expected on that topic. Suzanne, welcome to the podcast again. Thank you, Al. So, as is always with these conversations, um, unlike the conversations we've had before on the podcast, uh, twice before, um, we're gonna. I'm following a very set format of questions with each of the people uh, that I'm talking with about the intersection or lack thereof of intellectual humility and historical thinking, and that's a for, format of questions. It might be uh, like a like a catcher with a pitcher. You might shake that off from time to time, and I might shake it off from time to time as 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 we go along. But uh, as always, uh, I, I'm curious how you first came to like history. I would presume that that happened before you received your PhD from the University of Chicago. Um, but you know, sometimes I'm not sure with some with some historians. So when did you first come to just like history? Well, in all honesty, Al, I come by it by way of my family. In part, my father was a great American historian uh, who specialized in the history of advertising, and I think I came to love history uh, not only from listening to him talk at the dinner table, but from an assignment that he gave me one summer as a high school student when I was bored and had nothing to do. And that was to go through old ladies' home journals and count things like how many men in the car ads were wearing hats and uh, how many advertisements there were in which a woman appeared at all and um, uh, various other sorts of of, um, just tabulations. But that gave me a real love of popular culture and of original source material. And that has stuck with me, even though I'm really an intellectual historian, as you mentioned, and I do a great deal of work just with printed text. I also have to take my hat off very much to my undergraduate teachers who um, interested me in so many different things in uh, Russian literature and um in art, in uh, politics, but almost always from a very historical perspective. And I think that um, I have never been without the sense that I need chronology to hang my hat on. So uh, I, I get very confused when I read things that are not in chronological order. I think that just comes so naturally to me. I can hardly um, help but ask when, when at every turn. So. Did you enter college as a history major or were you sort of undecided? I've noticed a lot of the people I've talked to have been, were undecided for quite 
at least two years. They they went or they even had multiple majors before they finally hit upon a history major. I was undecided, and uh, I really was inclined towards literature. I remember the day I made my decision. I was sitting in a literature course on English and American drama, which I loved, and I thought, oh, this is such great stuff. But then I thought, can I devote my life to studying people uh, who are not real or studying texts that are not um, concrete in the same way? Um, and I decided I really, really wanted that dimension of the the real life of human beings. So it was in sometime in that that sophomore year, I think, not not when I went to college. And I think um, we do a disservice to our own students by trying to make them decide too early, and um, they would be better off, uh, I think, making that choice as they've had some college courses under their belt. Um, but that's um, that's increasingly hard these days. Everybody wants to specialize early. Yeah, you you find that it's it's interesting. I um I found the opposite when I was teaching undergraduates. Maybe it was the school that I was at, but they uh, they weren't allowed to choose a major till the second semester of their first the or the third we had trimester system the third term of their first year, um, which horrified me when I went off to undergraduate. If you didn't have a major by Labor Day of your <laughs> first year, it was like you were a, a carrier of a plague and. <laughs> You would cause all these people from, you know, graduate from Stuyvesant or Bronx Science to like get, you know, the cooties or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, how did you then? I can see the connection between studying ads uh, for your dad and counting, you know, men in hats. I can see that connection between that and porcelain. Correct. Uh, but. And I can even see the connection of literature to porcelain. And mm -hmm. but how did he, then this interest in how shall we say um, neutron dense German intellectual historic history? How did that come about? Uh, this is this is reminds me of the famous uh, intellectual historian whose name I will not mention, who said to me, "Al, you have to understand all intellectual historians are really failed philosophers." Mm. I, I made that with true for him. I, yeah. I, I kind of recognize it myself, um, but it's it's just it's tough stuff. Why did you why did you gravitate towards it? In part because it was tough. I love a challenge, and I thought, "Wow, that sounds really hard." I think I'd like to try that. And I also have to take my hat off again to undergraduate teachers, um, Martin Jay in particular at Berkeley who I took many courses from and who introduced all kinds of different genres into our courses. And that taught me that I could be an intellectual historian and study things other than philosophy. I could mm -hmm. study also literature or art or um, music uh, in some way that was deep and, uh, and challenging, but was not necessarily purely philosophical. Mm -hmm. And I think in graduate school, I learned um, also to take uh, an interest in the history of disciplines and in uh, persons who were not perhaps of the highest um, caliber in terms of our uh, canon of experts and to understand um, those persons and the, the worlds around them um, in a way that doesn't require you to be so philosophically uh, focused or to 
to uh, parse only their thought or the most refined aspects of their thought and allows you to maybe take in a wider ambit of subjects rather than, let's say, devoting your life to Hegel or um, mm. or Kafka. Yeah. Uh, and that it never has um, particularly interested me to to focus on a canonical figure or um, to write a biography, although interestingly, I've just decided that I will co-edit a series of short biographies um, with my good friend and former colleague Tony Grafton. So um, maybe I'm I'm changing my tune. But um, well, you are writing a you're starting to write a book on Herodotus, and it's hard to get a lot more canonical or iconic than himself. You might say so, although I will argue that Herodotus has almost always been the iconoclast choice. Um, That's true. As compared to Thucydides, for example, who is still all the rage in international relations um, and who was the great favorite of Hobbes and Henry Kissinger, uh, Herodotus has always been um, something of the anthropologist's choice or the mm. Um, the campus radical choice. Yeah. Or even the Orientalist's choice or the theologian's choice as compared to yeah. the political orator's choice. I, that's why I'm a Polybius guy. I don't want to be a part of that fight. Uh, <laughs> so, so what uh, what are some of the particular questions in history that perplexed you? I mean, and, and um, I'm curious how early and how long – how early you came to them, how early those questions came to you, and how long they've stuck with you? Um, you know, it's an interesting question, Al. I, you know, one of the questions that I have um, I have asked since I think it was junior year in college was this question about the power of antiquity in the modern world. And uh, that is partly the legacy of um, Edith uh, Butler's old book called The Tyranny of Greece Over Germany, which I found uh, very fascinating and which provoked me to work on the history of Philhellenism and archaeology, um, which in turn led me to also interest myself in the history of Orientalist scholarship in the Bible. Uh, and I think that's a long-lasting interest that I won't ever shake. Obviously, Herodotus is part of this. I am mm -hmm. um, just now reading Oswin Murray's new book, uh, just about to come out, about um, the history of Greek um, history. And one of the things he says, and I think it's it's absolutely true, is we have deeply underestimated how much we owe to ancient history as a developer of methods and of ideas and of oration and of so many disciplines um, that we know now. Uh, and I'd love to see us reunite somehow ancient and modern historians and have a better and, and deeper conversation about that. Um, other questions that I have been interested in for a long time are uh, questions about the 19th century status and how, uh, how we view it. Over time, it used to be when I was in college and graduate school, the center of focus. Everyone had to know the 19th century. People like Michelet were still household names. Um, people knew who uh, who John Stuart Mill was. And um, there was a very, very intense conversation, of course, about Marx, but also about many other 19th century writers. That 
is really off center now or um, disappearing. We have changed our focus for better and worse. Um, so I'm still very much interested in how we view the 19th century, how we cut it up, uh, mm-hmm. when we think it started and when it ended. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm interested in the fin de siècle. Someday I hope to write a book about fin de siècle culture, which has also gone out of fashion, but was you know so enticing to me as a um, as an undergraduate, and then um, when I read Karl Shorsky's Fin de Siècle Vienna, um, that all was um, to me you know an exciting, vibrant world that I wanted to capture. So I, I hear you. In in, in effect, uh, you've described excitement when when uh, a couple of times when you came to these these questions. So this was not simply a cognitive, but also really an emotional response. There was something captivating about fin de siècle, uh, Vienna, Paris, Berlin. There's something, despite maybe the crowd focusing on something else, there's something about the 19th century that makes Suzanne Marchand say, no, there's just something really important here Mm -hmm. and worth attending to. Yeah. Uh, I think I couldn't. Um, I couldn't do what I do, the teaching most importantly, perhaps, but also the research without that sense of you know deep curiosity and also just um, a kind of of thrill of discovery and of of learning. Um, I've never been one to choose my subjects based on either my ancestry or who I am or uh, am not or um, a political uh, or social uh, point that I want to make. What do, what do you mean about the ancestry? You mean that like, um, so that it would be like um, when a Southerner says to me, well, why are you interested in the history of the, of the, of the American South? You're not, you're from New Jersey. Is that sort of thing? Right. And uh, I, so for example, I'm one of relatively few German historians of my generation who don't have some German ancestry or Jewish mm-hmm. ancestry that provoked them to ask questions about their family mm-hmm. history or themselves. Uh, and I think that, that that's a natural way many people get involved in history. And it's not bad. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's perfectly reasonable, but it's just not what makes me tick. So I'm I'm not interested in for example, the history of California, where I um, where I grew up, um, it's an interesting subject, I'm sure, but not for me. So uh, that makes me just different than some other historians I know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, you've written a lot of essays. Um, e- e- what's the uh, of them or of your three sort of single authored books you've, you've co-authored or co-edited many many more? Um, What's the argument that you've made that you're the p- most proud of, and and why? Is it? I, I'm I'm sort of looking for as I think of an argument as the best answer, your best answer to your most provoking question. I mean, they don't always overlap like that, but sometimes right. they do. Right. Um. Let me think. I you know one of the pieces that I wrote for a completely um unknown and difficult to find collection of essays is about the art historian Joseph Strogowski, who was the first professor of non-Western art history. Um, and I think that 
uh, asking about the um, the origins of our current multiculturalism in um, this very unknown uh, and obscure world of Austrian late 19th century art history led me to all sorts of interesting discoveries, including the ways in which Strogowski, who was, by the way, a very objectionable character and uh, became at least a very close sympathizer with the Nazi party in the 1930s, uh, his enormous impact on um, Eastern European and non-Western art historians themselves because his critique appealed greatly to them as their means of getting back at the West. Uh, that to me was an unexpected set of finds and really a, um, I think a, a remarkable um, set of, of um, leads to trace out. Um, there are a lot of other of my essays that have tendency to also be a bit iconoclastic in that way to to look for the origins of things that we um, we find particularly um, attractive and uh, to find out that they they have their dark sides as well. Uh, I'm very I'm very proud of the porcelain book as well because it was something I never expected to write, but um, which I think um, really. Uh, captures a very interesting um, story in German economic and cultural history that um, that might well appeal to a broader public beyond the intellectual history world. Mm -hmm. um, when you, well, one of the ideas for this series, uh, at one point I thought about calling the series, um, What I Got Wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, what would make you think that an argument of yours was wrong? Different archival findings, um, different, so a different set of evidence, uh, a newer, wider set of evidence. I mean, is it possible to be wrong in history? Oh, of course. Of course it is. And <laughs> one could be wrong in many different ways. One could be just factually wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say, you know, use, um, a source. This, of course, this is true in ancient history all the time. You you use a source uh, that you think uh, is you the closest one to the proximate you know moment, um, and then you find out that that is a forgery or a corrupted um, source, or uh, there's there's reasons why that particular individual reported something that um, make it less trustworthy. You can certainly find many instances of that. I mean, one of the things that I love about studying the history of ancient history is just how hard it is to get things right uh, or to get things better. Um, and so many things we just can't know for sure. Um, we uh, can't know the dates of many things for sure. Um, much in uh, in Egyptology, for example, is so insecure. I recently asked an Egyptologist uh, what the uh, current consensus was about um, about uh, the chronology of Egyptian kings, and he said there is no consensus. It doesn't exist. It still doesn't exist. So, you know, what, there are so many ways in which ancient historians have um, corrected themselves and found new methods and improved. 
their knowledge, reviewed and reversed themselves. And modern historians ought to take um, better note of that and do the same thing. I mean, we often don't want to admit um, that. I think the ancient historians are much more humble because they they know just how easy it is. They have to hold their conclusions in very gentle hands. Very true. They just they can't get too attached to them. Um, I, you think of this new project, this very exciting project to use x-rays to recover the burnt papyri from one of the villas in Herculaneum, I believe. And you, I mean, I just imagine the classicists both excited and terrified at what Correct. might be, might be discovered. Right. Um, I because, mean, this is very true of the new DNA methods uh, mm-hmm. also, which are being very hotly disputed, but there's a great example of um, ways in which sources and their uses can come in and completely change your picture. Um, mm. All of that is is quite sobering. And I have certainly been wrong many times. I think one of the th- things I've been wrong about most consistently is to say something is new when it's not. How do you, what um, do you mean by that? Some new, I, I think some new um, method, let's say, has been developed in philological criticism. And then my wonderful early modern colleagues show me that it's not new. It was being used already by Lorenzo Valla in the 15th century. Uh, or, um, or I try to argue that there's some you know, new uh, way of, let's say, um, thinking about the Orient in the 1830s. And then I realize, actually, that um, is by no means new people knew about those aspects or already had treated them somewhere else. That is really hard for a modern historian to, um, to make a case for because uh, so many modernists pride themselves on being new and modern and emphasizing their novelty. And we get sucked into that and believe them. You mean the subjects, these, these, the self-described moderns of the, 19th or the 18th century who believe that they're creating a new world, a new way of seeing and thinking and feeling and being. And we love this. This is what attracts, it's what attracts me to the 18th century. Um, you know, uh, uh, but I'm in danger. The problem is I might begin to believe them. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, how long did it take us to really realize that Ronka was not the first person to do serious archival work? Um, you know, how long has it taken us to realize that, you know, Jean Baudin thought of many things before Montesquieu? I mean, you know, there are just many, many ways in which um, earlier um, figures stand on the shoulders of someone else. And either they ramp up their own novelty and we believe it, or we just don't go back far enough to make sure that we what we see and think is modern is is really modern uh and Mm. not older um so it's um that's a constant problem when you're trying to do some sort of study that doesn't also degenerate into a multi-millennium study and also conclude that there's nothing new under the sun surely there's some but it sounds like that did something rather different Something between Suzanne Marchand of 1992 and 
2024 is you have a different definition of what it means to be modern. I do. I think um, I think I hardly believe that much is modern anymore, um, and I certainly have have revived uh, revised my view of um, the process of um, of scholarship and its novelties. Um, I'm still sure that there are things that the Germans introduce in the 19th century that are new. But I no longer believe that they are the ones who invent all the new uh, techniques. Uh, and defining exactly what they add, um, and as compared to the French or the Italians, is is important. Let's me finish up with one sort of final uh, sensitive uh, question. I think it's sensitive. I mean, but you've written so many essays that you probably have a, a thicker skin about this than I might, I would do. Certainly. Um, you must have written something that got letter to the editor, um, got other essays objecting to your essay. Um, how did you learn to respond to that criticism? I mean, and how do you respond to that criticism? I would imagine, I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of historians would say that they respond in a rational, um, measured, and fundamentally um, cognitive way, but I doubt it. Uh, I, I imagine their heart beats faster. Their pupils enlarge. There's the hair might stand up a little bit on the back of their neck. There might be a flight or fight res, uh, response, in other words, at least for a couple seconds, maybe even for hours or days. Uh, and, and maybe they never talk to the person again at any academic conference at which they tend to be at. Um, but I mean, how, how did, has any uh, criticism you received like that, has it made you change your mind? And if so, why and how? Great question. The example I can think of most directly is the review of Down from Olympus uh, written by Hugh Lloyd-Jones, great British classicist. He really hated the book. He really hated it. And I think his major criticism was that I just didn't appreciate how much he and other classicists love antiquity and cared about it. And, you know, for a long time, I felt very, um, very mad about that. It seemed to me that they were not taking on board my um, history of the discipline uh, and um, just sort of reacting with a, you don't know you're an outsider. Um, you can't play in our pool. Um, he even, published that essay in a collection of his of his reviews so he must have liked the essay a lot so that was kind of mortifying but what it it did teach me in the end and it you know has taken me quite a long time to see that um is that i do really need to remember how much uh the scholars i write about um cared about their subject and really were invested often personally in it. And I think that, that that translated into a better approach in the German Orientalism book, where I was able to see and and perhaps really use against uh, a kind of a Saidian critique, an understanding of the way people work as scholars. That is that most of them don't get into any particular subject where they have to invest a tremendous amount of effort 
just to score points or be politically active or you know even accomplish a mission for some patron there usually has to be some place uh in the heart and soul that commits itself to the the field so i think that you know in the end i should be thankful um to lloyd jones who there's no dispute was far greater scholar than i will ever be um but i think you know his um his assessment was maybe not necessarily fair of the book but it was it brought home to me a real truth that i've carried with me since suzanne marchant thank you for once again being part of historically thinking very great to do it and lovely to talk to you al and thanks so much to you as well for being a part of historically thinking if you like the podcast then share it with a friend or many friends vivian lundy is our assistant producer john ruddat is our sound engineer i'm al zambone And I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 